Now, with that being said, we've kind of been walking through this process of singleness and marriage, and, and I wanted to give you just a, a, a glimpse of the hope of what God can do in the life of a marriage. But I would love to say that at the end of the day, all marriages end up like theirs. And it's fairy tales and, and you know, puppy dogs and rainbows and ponies. But we live in a fallen world, don't we? And while even for their marriage, it's not perfect. God did a restorative work, but God doesn't necessarily, as he works through people's lives, we don't see that in every single marriage. And I'm one that sits in front of you today as a kid of, of parents that I would have loved nothing more than to have that experience with my parents. That's the experience I prayed for in 2000. I'll never forget when my dad came and told me, we're getting divorced. And at the time, I just... The devastation that sets into your heart when your parent tells you that. Even though I was, I mean, I'm in my late 20s, and people always just say, oh, I'm so glad you weren't a kid when your parents got divorced. As if, oh, late 20s? That it's good. Oh, thank you. I feel so good about my parents' divorce now. At the end of it, there's a devastation to it and a heartache to it. But one of the things that I want to do as we kind of close this off is I want to make sure that we enter into this with an understanding that no matter which way life has turned, even if you've gone down the path of divorce, our God is still redeemable in all things. I don't want that to be a scarlet letter for some of you in here that are divorced, because I know you've heard us, and I, I will never veer away from this. Marriage is for life. But, even in the midst of difficulty, our God does the amazing. Now with that, what we've been trying to do, and for those of you that might be new here, is that a few weeks ago, Chris Hay laid out this concept of what it looks like, that our marriages are to reflect God's, kind of his relationship between himself and Israel. And he, he did such a good job talking about we shouldn't buy into the world's pattern, but we got to buy into an understanding that who we model ourselves after is God. Then last week, what I tried to do is, is I tried to bring in this idea that oftentimes, that number one, when we, when we seek to do that, it's counterintuitive. In other words, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. And even last night after I got done speaking, a lady came up to me and she said, you know, you're the first person inside of the church that's told me I should try to fight for my marriage. Really? The first one? She looked back at me and she said, all my Christian friends are telling me, just move on. It's counterintuitive. It's the moment that Jesus Christ, right in Luke 9, set his face into his assignment that was the cross. And it wasn't going to be a happy event. It wasn't going to be a glorious event. But in it, he saw that on the other side of the cross was joy. He believed wholeheartedly that all things are redeemable by God. And he knew that in that, <clears throat> it's not only that we set our face into our assignment, but we believe that there's joy in our assignment. That James 1, 2 through 4, right? That God has Christ's likeness for us. He has endurance for us. He has maturity for us. Romans 5, he's going to give us hope like we've never known. 1 Peter, he's going to give us assurance of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, he's going to give us this, this idea of comfort and nearness to God. In 2 Timothy, he's going to remind us that we fight the good fight because at the end, the reward of God is worth it. And so in it, we never want to ever say 
that somehow in this, that we don't fight for anything but marriage for life. But Paul understood in 1 Corinthians 7, that's not always the way it goes. Now, go with me to 1 Corinthians. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. What do we do when all of a sudden it doesn't go the way that we want it to go? Now, look at verse 10, and let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Paul's, Paul's fight for this idea that marriage is for life. But a little caveat to this, in, in chapter 7, verse 10, if you need a Bible, uh, there's uh, man, you're a good-looking dude. Every time you walk at me, I think Carol is one lucky woman. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge. He's going to say, not I, but the Lord. He's just meaning, look, this is something that Jesus has already talked about. I'm just going to reference it again. The wife, and actually this term should be, is not to separate from her husband. And you're going to see this idea of separation and divorce. It's just two synonyms that are used by Paul to kind of discuss the idea of, of how marriage is for life. Go after the parentheses. You're going to see this again. And the husband command, actually, is not to divorce his wife. See, this is why we've been saying it. When we say that marriage is for life, we're only saying it because Scripture is saying there is no place whatsoever inside of the Christian. If we have two believers, they are to fight to the end to maintain that relationship, regardless of anything. We're talking about adultery. Whatever may come along, marriage is for life. Now look at the little parentheses, though. In it, and you could put she or he in here. He's, I think, tying these two together in a, in a unique way. <clears throat> but if she does, or even the idea is if she is in this state of or becomes in this state, then Paul, what are we supposed to do? And I love how Scripture always has an answer for these things. She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, does anybody else sense that's counterintuitive to our world? Like the moment we start talking divorce, it's like, oh yeah, you're going to get rid of that man. I'll tell you what. Girl, there's all kinds of goodness out there for you. Just move on. You know, the guys, you know, that's right. You finally got rid of the all ball and chain. Now you can pursue somebody else. Paul comes in, and remember we talked about last week, counterintuitive. If you end up that way, stay unmarried and fight for reconciliation. See, at the end of the day, what God is always desiring to do is to restore now, where did Paul get that crazy idea from? He got it because he saw the example of it in God the Father. See, if we're going to understand what do we do if we're already in this place, again, it's what we started with way back with Chris. Let's go back to understand what God has done in this. Now, if you look back into the Old Testament, you start to see that God understands a difficult relationship. And if you don't believe it was difficult, then you don't understand what it was to be the God of Israel. 
I mean, how many of you have read the Old Testament and thought, dang, I would have killed them a long time ago? <laughs> right? It's God going, here's another prophet. Here's another prophet. Here's one more. Here's one more. I mean, you understand, it's over a millennia of dealing with this people. Whenever I hear somebody go, you don't understand, it's been 10 years of dealing with this. God did it for hundreds Because God's not going to quit. See, Israel could never say, God, we didn't know. <laughs> what part about like burning bushes and <laughs> killing people in the desert did you not understand? How serious I was, a prophet after prophet. And in a weird way, like I was sitting in this, in this sandwich shop this week and there's a guy named Maury something on TV. Maury uh, Povich or Popovich or Povich, thank you, heathen watching that. And so I'm watching it and it's, it's these people that have, you know, it's all divorced and messed up marriages. And people are looking at him going, oh, totally, like can that loser. Can you imagine if God was on Maury Povich and Maury Povich was giving him advice? Here's God sitting there in regards to his relationship with Israel, and I think maybe Oprah or Dr. Phil, whoever would say, listen, God, they're never going to change. Just move on. Cut your losses. There's other tribes out there like the Moabites. They're not too bad. Can Israel move on? You know, they've kind of played the promiscuous women, that whole adulterous thing. They're addicted to their sin. God, you just need to get toxic people out of your life. <laughs> God, the longer you stay in this, the more you're going to have to pay. You know, God, you've warned them from hundreds of years. Enough is enough. You deserve better. You made a covenant with them, but listen, they were the ones that broke it. You know, sometimes, God, we just marry the wrong people. You should have done the Ammonites. Maybe that would have worked out better. You know, God, obviously, they don't love you. There's no way this group of people's ever going to make you happy. God, just, just move on. I think divorce is your only solution. You know, God, give yourself some grace. Divorce isn't the worst thing. God, you know what? Can you really trust him in the long run? Do you really want to do the work that's required to save this marriage? What if it doesn't work out? God, just move on. Now, aren't you glad that God doesn't listen to our advice. Can you imagine that applied to ourselves? God, Todd's such a loser. <laughs> ushers, ushers. That's not funny. I'm being hypothetical. I had this great moment coming in which we were going <laughs> to, now with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, nobody caring about your neighbor. 
way to ruin the spirit moving today. Anyways, <laughs> I don't want you to feel guilty, but but the thing you have to understand about our God and who we're to call to model ourselves after is that He's a relentless lover. He won't quit. Now, on one level, I can see God sitting in that chair at that moment, looking back and going, yeah, most of what you said is true. It is a bad relationship. It's a difficult relationship. But you don't know the half of it. See, in Ezekiel, even, God helps us understand who the Israelites were. In Ezekiel 16, 15, he tells them that you all trusted in your beauty. Look at this. You played the what? Don't say it. The whore? Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, and you gave your beauty to his. Wow. See, I think he would even take it a step further. Is that You don't understand the difficulty of it. I've been sitting there crying out to this people for all these years. And think about this. By the time you come to Luke 19, here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And it says as he's coming into Jerusalem with the understanding that not only had they rejected all the prophets, but finally their Messiah lands in front of him. Here's God crying out to Israel. And one of the few places we see this, it says Jesus wept over Jerusalem. See, sometimes we don't think God understands a difficult relationship. Go, oh, God, you don't understand. You're God. Are you kidding me? God understands way more than we even can comprehend. I get it. Now, in it, what's so interesting is, is that God has this also the capacity to look at a group of people and say, I'm here fighting for you, but finally with Israel, we look at him, we see him look at the people of Israel and say, is that really what you want? Do you want your sin? Do you want those gods? Those gods that have mouths but can't talk? Those gods that have ears but can't hear? Those gods that have hands but can't move? Is that what you want? And finally, like places like Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 3, Hosea 2, in this unique way, God says, then go get your sin. Now, on one level, it's like, well, did he quit? I thought you said God had relentless love. God gave that to him for a purpose. He said to them, go get your sin, and you'll even see this in this next passage in Ezekiel 16, 39. He says, look, I will give you into their hands. Fine, do you want your lovers? Go get them, but here's what they're going to do. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places. They'll strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewels, leave you naked and bare. In other words, if that's what you want, go get your sin. It says he even gave them a writ of divorce. Wait, I thought God hated divorce. Are you kidding me? Of course he does. 
He didn't want them to go. He'd been crying out to them over and over and over and over. And finally, in their gigantic sovereign reasons, which we will never understand fully, what he was doing and including in the Gentiles in this whole process. But basically, he looked at this people and said, go get your sin. Go get it. Have at it. You know that passage in Hosea, sometimes we read this idea that, that God hates divorce. And I think we have it up there. Good, right? 2.16. Sometimes we think it's like him looking down at us and saying, I hate you all's divorce. When in actuality, he understands this more than we realize. He hates it because it's personal. He watched this group of people, like when you look at it in Ezekiel 16, he's like, I remember the day that I found you, and I cleaned you up, and I made you beautiful. I remember doing all these things in you, and then what did you do? You walked away from me. Now, I think Maury Povich at that point would go, that's right, God, let them go. They deserve to go. They deserve everything they're getting. But that's not our God. He might have let them go, but he had a plan behind it. Look at this next passage. He says, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. I'll establish a lasting covenant with you. Then you finally will remember, be ashamed, and remain silent when I make atonement for all you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. In other words, I'm letting you go get your sin with the understanding that you will realize that your sin is not worth it and you will come back to me. Go get it, not because I'm done with you. Go get your thing. Go get it because once you've gone out there and seen it, You'll come back. See, this God wasn't done. Not only that, but when you look at a passage like this one, in Hosea 2, he says, In the future, I will allure her. Don't you love that word? Back in the day, remember when you used to date and you don't do it anymore because you're old and crusty in your relationships now? But when you used to date, you used to allure your wife. I remember the first time I took her out, I was going to allure her. And to this day, people ask her, like, what was it that finally you realized Todd was the man? She goes, he opened doors for me. Little did she know I would open the door in the car sometimes and put her in because I'd have gas and I'd have to walk around to the other side. (laughs) God works in mysterious ways, right? But all these things that we do to allure, in other words, God says, not only am I going to let you go get it, but I'm going to be there the whole time, not just saying you can come back. I'm going to allure you. One of the things I so appreciated about what my mom did in her divorce, she modeled for me as a kid, is that when my dad rejected my mom, my mom refused to quit. Everybody was telling her, oh, just quit. Just let that loser go get his thing. Peggy, there's all kinds of good stuff out there for you. And she, in her head, determined that she was to follow after God with everything she was. She wasn't to quit. She fought and she fought and she fought. Let me tell you something. As a kid, that was powerful. 
That was powerful watching a woman following after God and saying, even though you're walking away, I won't quit. And in fact, she sought to allure. I will lead her, he says, back into the wilderness. Look at that word also. I'll speak tenderly to her. Don't you love that? This one that has just gone off that he says has hoard herself all over the place. He says, not only will I allure her back, I'll speak tenderly to her. I love that. I'll commit myself to you for at least one try. I'll make a go at it. I'll commit to you forever. I'll commit myself to you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love, tender compassion. Does this sound like a God who quits? He's like, I know I've let you go get your sin, and I'm going to win you back. And in fact, when you look at it in this next section, in this next verse that you have up here, Jeremiah 3.22, here's God calling out, out, out to them, come back to me, you wayward people. I want to cure your waywardness. And he desires to hear back from them the next part of this verse. Look at verse B. Here we are, God. We come to you because you are the Lord, our God. Even after it hasn't worked, the point in that little parenthesis in chapter 7 is don't quit. Keep going. Follow the path of God. See, the whole point of Romans 9 through 11, you may not know this or not, but Israel is going to return to God. God's not done with Israel yet. But in that same way, that's the attitude we're supposed to have. That's the example we're supposed to follow. Well, then the question is then, if that's true, how do we get a person to the point, though, where we might have to look at them and say, then go get your sin? If you remember right, when I was speaking through 1 Corinthians 5, the way that we get there is through this process called church discipline, to which everybody, not everybody, so many people look down on. See, I think in the back of our heads we think sometimes in marriages that are difficult is that I've tried everything. And by what we mean by I've tried everything, it's that I've tried everything I can do and forget the fact that God has laid out a process for us to walk through difficult situations between people. Now, if you're currently in a difficult situation, don't try to do it by your wisdom it's counterintuitive. See, Matthew 18 says this. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. One of the biggest reasons that we have marital difficulties is because husbands and wives don't confront one another. Why? I can tell you why I don't confront my wife. Because when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so I'm just going to make it all good here in my house. All the while, you don't understand, she's such a wretched sinner. No, kidding. On the other end, though, me too, right? See, one of the first things we've got to understand is that God in his love relationship with Israel was never afraid to go to them and confront them. 
Now, Israel didn't have to confront God. Don't, don't try to connect that dot. But the whole goal is what? That I might win over my brother. Well, but what happens if they don't do that? Well, in that next process, then, what we're supposed to do, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Most marriages end up staying in that funk because we don't then bring the church in as a means of confronting. In other words, sometimes it requires a group to do that. Now, in my particular context, when I speak about my parents, I had a church that did such a good job on that. I'll still never forget, I was a new elder at that particular church. My parents were a part of it. When my dad left my mom, I watched as one after one elders went to go meet with him to beg him to come back into his relationship. Went out there. They got after it. They confronted even at great cost to themselves. Why? Because they wanted to see restoration, the heart of God. But there may even come a point where dealing with this issue, we have to tell it to the whole church. And let me tell you something. There was nothing scarier than the day I had to sign a letter to my dad saying that we were going to tell it to the church. Church disciplining your father is not an easy thing to do. Why did we do it? Because our God can restore anything. The whole church went after him. I'll never forget this. There was this kind, tender old lady. She drove an hour and a half to go find my dad to confront him, to come back to him. I mean, can you imagine this beautiful, probably mid-80s, looking at my dad and going, get your friend when he's back here. You know, it's just like, I love the thought of that. Go get him. But at the end of all of it, I remember finally my dad rejected me. And I went out to see him at the house he was at. And I looked at my dad. And I said, Dad, go get your friend. That's tough. Why did I do it? Because I wanted God to do a work. Now, I'd love to tell you, and then what happened is everything went perfect. And my mom and my dad now are living in marital bliss. Every time we go for Christmas, it's candy canes and lovely things. It's awesome. Why? Because not only did they stay divorced, but my dad quit and got remarried. Oh, the agony of that. I'll never forget my mom calling me up on the day my dad got married. We were sitting there on the phone. She calls me and she goes, Todd, I fought for all I could to save this marriage. I did everything I could. And at the end of it, I have peace. She said, Todd, I would have regretted not fighting for it, but I don't regret fighting for it. God was able to do a work in her life of modeling the heart of God. We don't quit. Now, some people will say, yeah, but that's God. Stop that. We have the mind of Christ. 
we have the sufficiency and capacity to walk down any pathway and to fight for it like God fights for it, to allure back our husbands or our wives. Why? Because we think it'll be comfortable for us? No, because God is so great. Now in it, here's the key issue. If you remember right, the church enters into that. I think one of the biggest reasons why people end up getting divorced and Cornerstone has failed at this is the church has let them walk through it alone. On the issue of adultery, we've been as clear as we could be. Adultery is not grounds for divorce, but oftentimes we just tell the husband or wife, you just go back in there and get it. No, the Bible says that those who are mature, Galatians 6, are to enter into that with them and to help them restore it. That's why we've started up a biblical counseling center. We don't want you to be alone as you walk through that. And so if you need help walking through it, that's what the counseling center is here for. We want to walk with you through that particular process. But Todd, what about abuse? If you remember right back in, in, in Malachi 2.16, or, yeah, anyway, he talked about this, there it is. The one who is guilty of violence, God hates. I always hear people say that, that, that somehow abuse is grounds for divorce. No, abuse is not grounds for divorce. But oftentimes what the church says is, is that's not grounds, you go back in there. And all the while, we send back in that spouse. And by the way, there's a growing number of women that abuse their husbands. So don't think it's just a woman uh, issue in which they're getting abused. The church is not to tell them to go back into it. The church is to go with them back into it. See, we're not just supposed to go say, go, you know, go do your thing. This is where the church now comes with them. In fact, the way that it says in Galatians 6 is we bear one another's burdens. The first time I ever saw the true issue of abuse is we were walking with a couple, my wife and I, in Cheyenne when I was a pastor there. And they came to us and they're like, you know, he's abusive. And I remember saying, okay, well, we need to work with you through this. And, and, and here's the process. And I looked at him and I said, listen to me. If you ever touch your wife again, she will call me on the phone. I will show up at your house and I will be the one in your face. And I'll be dialing 911 on the end of it because I'm a lover, not a fighter. But, I'm, you know, it's just like we, we're going to enter into this with you. And what happens? One week later, we get a phone call at 2 in the morning. He's pounding on the bathroom door, and she's calling, saying, help. You know, you wake up, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, baby, dial 911. We're out the door. You know, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just remember, like, you know, we come into the house, and you're not thinking. And I just remember positioning myself between the man and the door. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, he might hit me. I would love to say I had this great, just godly thing that drove me to it. But at the end of it, I learned a massive lesson. The church doesn't let its women get abused. And after it, I looked at him. He said, why'd you call the cops? I said, because you broke the law. In Acts 25, Paul appealed to civil authorities. Did you know that? He appealed to the civil authorities in what was going on in that issue. And I would say this, where the law has been given the sword, we're supposed to do it. And on some levels, I've heard people say, yeah, but if my husband goes to jail, do you understand the mess we'll be in? And I look back at them and say, do you understand if your husband doesn't go to jail, do you understand the mess you'll stay in? 
Sometimes one of the best things for an abuser is to own the fact that that's who they are, and sometimes going and sit in a jail cell may not be bad for them. Call the police. See, in this, this is where the church enters into this as a means of restoration to save things. And so today, if you are sitting in here, somebody who's married, who's divorced from somebody, and neither one of you are remarried, model yourself after God and go allure your spouse back to you. Go fight for it. I promise you, you fight for it. You won't regret it. You don't fight for it. And you will have regrets that you didn't fight. Model yourself after God. But what if a spouse is already remarried? If a spouse is already remarried, I would say to you what my mom said to me. You did your job. You stayed single. You fought for your marriage. In this, Paul, I think, would look at you in 1 Corinthians 7 and say, you know what? Now it's just better to stay single. You learned what it's like. Stay single. But I think there's a little section of it in 729 that says, but if you do marry, I don't think you sin. I think if you get to the point where we treat the person as an unbeliever, Paul says in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, that now let the one go, and you, you are, you're free, is I think what he talks about. And so you're not, in other words, if there's no means of restoration, it seems to be you don't, you don't sin if you marry. What if we're both remarried? See, my question is, did you finish in a way that honors Jesus Christ? I see over and over again where there's so many forgiveness issues that people don't deal with. The Bible calls us to go back and to deal with forgiveness. If you're somebody that's wronged your spouse, go back and ask her for forgiveness. Even if there's no way of restoring your marriage relationship, why not at least go back to them and to say, you know what, you were the wife or the husband of my youth. Please forgive me for what took place. That was absolutely wrong. I wish to this day we might have been able to restore things. But you know what? Here's where we're at. Please forgive me. I see so many married people that wear their divorce around like a scarlet letter. Stop that. Either God forgives everything or he forgives nothing. If you're somebody in here that's divorced... It's not the scarlet letter. Deal with stuff between you and God. And after you've dealt with it between you and God, move on in victory. Don't hold it over yourself. So either fight for your marriage, fight for forgiveness. But to the rest of us in here that are the church, I just made a commitment to those that are divorced in our church that we will enter into their affliction. It's time they did it. The heartbreak for my mom is that at the end of it, the church did such a good job in her life, but then all of a sudden the church kind of abandoned you. She was left there with all of her friends that are still married, not sure what to do, going on with their lives, and she's trying to figure it out and work through all kinds of things. And by the grace of God, she had people step into our lives. But we as the church need to be there. 
We need men to step in the lives of single moms' homes that are committing to be single in the hopes of restoration to dive into their lives. Anna Vina. Mike's here today, isn't he, Barry? Remember when you got up in the, in the rafters with Ryan Avina? He was lost one time, and, and I think they, they totally loved on, on the Avinas, and, and she was talking about it last night, how cool it was. But what she needed was a man to sit down with her young boy and say, hey, home slice, it's time to man up. It's time to do life. It's to I here with you. And he climbed up into the attic, right? And they sat up in the attic and busted down life until he talked him down out of the attic. What we need men that step into those moments. We will never reach the divorced in our community until we take seriously the role that we play in diving into the divorced people's lives. It's a mission field out there. There's now probably more divorced people than married people, isn't there? And we have a requirement of God to go bring the greatest message out there to them. Some calling them back, like Danny and Letitia. Praise God, that captain shared Jesus and said, let's go see what God will do in your marriage. There's people out there that maybe can't from one end of it fix it like we'd love to see it, but God's grace is big. And I'd say this. Let's see God do a work. And if you're divorced in here and you'd like to talk through this, we'd love to pray with you. If you're somebody in here that doesn't know what to do with a particular issue because your marriage is kind of struggling. Last night I was so glad a couple came to me and said we need to talk about our marriage falling apart. If you want prayer in any way, we'd love to pray for you. But at the end of the day, we need to bring our eyes back to God. Aren't you glad that our God is a relentless lover? He's our example. Let's go follow him. Amen. All right, Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, your goodness to us. Father, would you help us to believe that you're a God that can forgive anything. Father, would you do a work in the divorced people's lives of our, our congregation? Would you help them through your grace to believe there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If they haven't dealt with their sin and all of that, Father, would today be the day that they deal with it? Father, if they, they haven't dealt with some of the past relationships, even if there's remarriage, would they go back to their spouses and beg for forgiveness on all kinds of issues? Would you allow them to make right what's possible to make right, not because they think it's comfortable, but because that's the God that we serve who forgives much? God, those in this church that have spouses that aren't remarried and they're not remarried, Father, would your spirit empower them to go back and to seek above all things, to see their relationships restored. God, would you help our church to believe that we have a responsibility to the divorced of not only this body, but our community. Father, help us to believe that you have a purpose and plan for those that have experienced the heartache of a difficult marriage just like you. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.